Hello, Woodland Hills Podrishioners. Last week I told you a little bit about this uh, temporary online community site that we're launching, and it is now launched. I want to invite you to uh, log in and be a part of this. It will give you a chance to discuss uh, how the Animate series is impacting you, uh, to discuss issues that surround that. Uh, it will give you a chance to network with other people who are podcasting from Woodland Hills Church, maybe even meet some folks uh, in your area that are a part of the Woodland Hills pod congregation. So we really encourage you to uh, be a part of this. We're trying to find out how much interest is out there to begin to develop a sort of virtual community. And we're also trying to determine whether this is something that will be sustainable on our part. So we really would appreciate your uh, input on this and participation in this. And we think it will be a blessing to you as well. So look forward to chatting with you online. God bless. Animate. It means to bring to life. And that's what we're going to be talking about here in the next five, six weeks. Bringing our spiritual lives, our relationship with God to life. Having them animated. It's all about the incarnation. God animates us, brings us to life. When we were dead, he made us alive. And the way he did that was by becoming a human being. The almighty God of this universe became a human being, made it concrete, made it finite. He made himself into his own image. And in that way, brings life to us. And what we're going to see in this series, is extremely important, foundational, but mostly neglected truth. What we're going to see is that... Uh, Abstract truths and the things of God become life-giving to the extent to which they're incarnated, made concrete, enfleshed, and experienced as concrete realities. And we're going to see that that is all about the use of our imagination in our walks with God. You may have noticed when you came in here, you notice anything different in the gathering area? Uh, there's some pretty cool art out there. Uh, that is... Um, uh, Dale Johnson, he's a uh, professor of art at Bethel University, attends this congregation, and uh, he is uh, letting us hang up some of his art here. And, and, and the point of that is that, and that's something we want to continue on, bringing more of the arts into this uh, building. Uh, because art is one of the ways that God uh, can use to make spiritual truths concrete. They activate the imagination. Things come alive. In just the same way as uh, a preacher telling a story, uh, really enfleshing a point does much more good and impacts you more than just talking about an abstract truth. And so we're going through the series, uh, Animate, and we're encouraging folks to be involved in Animate small groups uh, that will be going on. There's still a couple of those open, as Shauna mentioned. Uh, we've got an Animate booklet back there with some incredible individual and group exercises that we're encouraging folks to uh, be uh, participating in as they go throughout the series. We've got an Animate CD uh, that was created by someone in the congregation here to uh, do uh, spiritual meditations with and things of that sort. We're, we're doing parishioners listen up to this. Uh, we've got you know thousands of podrishioners, and we just love them, and, and we're, we're trying to develop more of a sense of community with them. And so uh, our, our, our internet team, or whatever the team is called, communication team, Charlie, what do you guys call yourselves? Anyways, they're experimenting with this kind of online community, looking at ways we can get connected more with these folks. And so podrishioners, you can participate in this animated series as well. We're really asking everyone, inviting everyone to be a part of this. Uh, making the things of God become life-giving, animated, by being concrete. So let's start, as we often like to start, with a problem. What's the problem that we're addressing here? And the problem really is this. Why is it that many of us 
Perhaps most of us, maybe if we're really honest, to some degree, all of us, know a lot more about God than, than we experience in our life. Why do we not experience more of the transforming power that we read about in the Bible? I mean, do you ever, you know, you're going along reading, reading the New Testament, has ever happened to you? And, and um, you read, you know, some of the stuff that's supposed to be true of the children of God, and you feel like a complete loser because it doesn't seem to be very evident in your life. Uh, you know, it, 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 so you read about how, how you know, we're, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things are new. And you're looking at your life and you're going, well, that doesn't seem true. And, and, you know, we've got, we're walking, talking temples of God. The Spirit of God is in us. There's a river of living water flowing out of us. We're seated with Christ and, and we're conformed to His image and, and, and empowered to put off all sin. And maybe you're looking at your life and you're saying, that doesn't seem real to me. Where's all the transforming power? Uh, the power of one who is filled with the Holy Spirit, where is that in our life? To some degree, if we're really honest with ourselves, we'll, we'll have to admit that the, the claims of the New Testament in terms of how Jesus' followers, kingdom people, are to be transformed, they don't quite match up with our life. Related to that is another question. And that is, why is it that many of us, perhaps most of us, and maybe to some degree all of us, don't experience as real the things that the New Testament says are real. And those two questions, by the way, are very closely related because what we'll see throughout this series is that it's not what you know in your head that transforms you. It's what you experience as real. In fact, that's, you're neurologically wired that way. And so to ask the question, why don't we experience more of this as real, is to already start to answer the question, why aren't we more transformed? But you read about all these truths in the New Testament, and we don't experience them always that way. We believe in God. Probably most people listening to this message right now believe in God. But we don't necessarily experience our world as though it was filled with the glory of God. God doesn't seem real to us. And the salvation that Christ brings and the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, it just doesn't seem real. And the biblical truths about who we are in Christ, seated in heavenly places, it just doesn't seem real. In fact, to a large degree, most of us experience our world pretty much the same way an atheist experiences his or her world. It's just that we believe a couple things differently, and maybe we engage in a couple of different behaviors, but in terms of how we actually experience the world, most of it is experienced as an atheist. Why is that? How can we don't experience this as, as, as more real? That's the kind of question that we're going to be uh, zeroing in on uh, throughout this series. How to experience the things of God as more real and therefore be transformed by them. Now, there's no shortage of answers to these questions out there. Uh, there's a lot of different approaches that people take to being more transformed and experiencing the things of God as more real. Here's a real common one. You go to the preacher and you say to the preacher, Preacher, I don't, uh, I'm not experiencing the transformation of the New Testament. You know, I don't have the fruit of the Spirit most of the time and I still have these nagging things in my life. The old self, the carnal thoughts, they're still coming back to me and, and, and I, I, I'm just not being transformed uh, by uh, the Spirit of God into the image of Christ. What's wrong? And what the preacher might say in a lot of contexts is this. Well, 
You're not putting forth enough effort. Uh, are you attending church regularly? Are you tithing? Have you been uh, you know, witnessing to people? When was the last time you want someone to Jesus Christ? Uh, you know, I, 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 are you engaging in the spiritual disciplines? Are you reading your Bible enough? And, and there's some truth to that because those, you know, doing those kind of activities can put us in a position to receive more of God. But the assumption behind that response is basically, I call it the try harder solution. Uh, you know, if you just try harder... Well, then you'll grow. It's kind of the American way, really, when you think about it. I mean, we're, we're kind of free will pragmatists. And we think that there's no problem that can't be solved if you just will it away and work at it enough. And so that gets brought into Christianity. And the assumption is that if you just put forth enough effort and willpower and, you know, and, and work at it, well, then every problem can be transformed, which means, of course, that if you're not being transformed, it's because you're not putting forth enough effort. So try harder. Now, there's a, there's a truth in this. Uh, it's true that there is, our will is involved in transformation. That's true. And, and it, it, it's true that, that spiritual growth sometimes involves fortitude, willpower. I'm not going to deny that. But if you think you can fundamentally change yourself by your own willpower, then what you're involved in is not the kingdom. You're involved in some kind of self-help therapy. And I can guarantee you, while it may do a little bit of uh, good here and there, it's not going to fundamentally transform you. The core of who you are isn't addressed by willpower. Willpower can change to some degree our behavior, but it can't change who you are. You go to the preacher and you say, uh, you know, how come I don't have this transforming love in my life? The preacher might say, well, try harder. And so you go out and try harder. And what you might succeed at doing is cranking out more loving behavior and maybe a little bit more loving speech, but it's not going to make you in and of itself a more loving person. In fact, all it might do is conceal the fact that you're not a loving person because now you're really good at faking like you are a loving person. And we call that the fruit of the Spirit. <laughs> fruit of the Spirit. It's a fruit of our self-effort. And, and in some circles, I mean, this is kind of what it means to be Christian is you crank out this good behavior and you learn how to conceal this stuff that really does need transforming. So there's some truth in the try-harder solution, but it, it's not, it, not going to solve the problem that we're talking about. Then there's folks who go to the opposite extreme. And these folks would say, well, look at, you know, we know that willpower doesn't do it. We're sinners. Um, and uh, so what you have to do is just wait on God. Let go and let God. And, and so in this case, you just sort of sit around and, and you pray for God to take this stuff from you. God, change me. God, take this sin from me. Take this habit from me. Take these attitudes from me. And you wait for God to do it. We call that the waiting on God solution. And there's a profound truth in this, isn't there? I mean, definitely it is the case that if God's not working in our life, there's no hope of us being transformed. There's no hope of us of, of, of ever experiencing anything as real. The Bible says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So there's a role we play. We work out the salvation. Notice we don't work at the salvation, but we work it out. We work out the truth of who we are in Christ. There's will involved in that. But the reason we can do that, Paul says, is because it's God who's in us, motivating us and changing us and, and, and compelling us. So we need God involved in this process for sure. And once in a while, you'll even find people who testify that, that God did just take it away from them. You know, they were, they, they, I had a friend who was just, you know, a couple of pack a day smoker and, and, and they went to this revival and got slain in the spirit and boom, he was freed. 
I hated the smell of cigarettes after that. Another alcoholic, boom, uh, overnight, lost their appetite for alcohol. And, and other bondages are sometimes broken overnight. The danger, however, is that sometimes those folks go around and testify about that and leave the impression that that's the way it's always supposed to work. And so for the rest of us who are struggling in our stuff, we're thinking, what's wrong with us? Well, what, what are we, losers? And the answer we sometimes get is, no, you just got to wait on God to, to take it away. And now you're wondering, well, how come God took it away from them just like that? And I'm sitting there living with it 20 years later. Sometimes God operates like that, but that's not necessarily the norm. And God usually works with us to bring about transformation in our life. We, we, God, in all things, God's working together with us. The word there is synergeo. We get the word synergy from it. It means to be working hand in hand. There's a, God doesn't make us puppets the minute we give our hearts to Christ. Rather, he empowers us to begin to take lordship over our life under his lordship. Uh, because that's how it was always supposed to run. So if you're waiting on God to just take it away, you might be waiting a very long time. And I submit you should look for something, uh, another aspect of this. Well, then there's, there's this... Uh, uh, possibility. And this is becoming more and more prevalent uh, in American Christianity. Uh, you know, up until recently, it was mainly the try harder solution that you'd find in most uh, uh, Christian uh, churches. But now you find sometimes a, a sort of new approach. We could, we could call this the uh, got to get more information solution. Uh, we live in the age of information. And increasingly, what I'm seeing in our culture is there, there is this increasing confidence in information to solve problems. There ain't no problem that we face that we can't solve if we just get a little more information. All of our problems are caused by our ignorance. So if you just know more things, well, then you'll be able to solve problems. And so in this case, you go to the preacher and you say, how come I'm not experiencing the things of God as real? And how come I'm not being transformed? What they might say is, well, here's three books on that topic. Go to this seminar. Here's nine passages. Listen to 42 more of Greg's sermons. That will for sure will do it. Get more information. But as we're going to see throughout this series, information does not, in and of itself, lead to transformation. See, if that was the case, that information leads to transformation, you would expect, wouldn't you, that all those who have PhDs in theology would just be the most spiritual people on the planet. It ain't so. In fact, my experience has been that those who are most inclined to most aggressively absorb information, the book readers, the studiers, and I'm all for information, believe me, I, I, book reading, definitely, you need to read more of my books, go out there, you know, uh, information's good, not, not saying it's bad, but uh, those who most trust in that, I find frequently have the hardest time experiencing anything as real. It's all locked up in their head. They know a whole lot about God, but the elevator doesn't go from the head to the heart and from the heart to the life. They're jammed up there. And some of them keep on thinking that if they just read another book or went to another seminar or heard 42 more sermons, that that would solve the problem. And it's not going to work like that. Something is missing. Something is missing. Now, I am averse to ever putting forth something as a formula, a cure-all, a panacea, uh, something that, the one, the, the magic bullet that's going to solve everything. Life's always more complex than that. On the other hand, what we're going to be looking at in this series is a very important foundational principle that we in Western culture have largely lost, and it has to do with our imagination. One of the main reasons why we don't experience the things of God as real and we're not more transformed 
is because the main vehicle that God has given us to experience the things of God as real has been nullified and forgotten in our culture. In some circles, there's even an air of suspicion about it. And I'm talking about the imagination. What I want to do now in the rest of this message, basically, is look at one passage. A passage in the New Testament that is really the most profound at emphasizing the centrality of imagination in our walk with God and in being transformed. It comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3 and also chapter 4. Let's read this, and I'm going to pick it apart as I go. Holy Spirit, open our minds to this. Help us to hear it. Help us to receive it. Paul is here talking about the episode in the Old Testament where Moses went up on Mount Sinai, was in the presence of God, came down, and his face was glowing. Uh, There's an aura about his face uh, because he'd been in the presence of God. And it was so bright that the Jews couldn't stand looking at him, so they put a veil over him. And now Paul is going to take that story and apply it today. He says, but their minds... No, he's talking about minds here. Their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. So he's taking the veil analogy, and now he's going to apply it to their minds. And he's saying, just as they had a veil that kept them from seeing the glory of God in the book of Exodus, so also to this day, there's a veil over their minds... That keeps them from seeing the truth whenever the Old Covenant is read. This veil has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. The blinders are taken off. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Now, what you need to know is that in a a biblical framework, mind and heart are not two different things. We get that from Greek culture. The Greeks used to think that reasoning and emotions were two separate things, and they looked down on emotion. Hebrews never thought that way. They saw that the mind and the heart were two aspects of the one self, the united self. You can think of the mind as the thinking component of the heart, and the heart as the feeling component of the mind. And by the way, we've learned in the last three decades from neuroscience that that is exactly right. Our thoughts and emotions are not two different things. They're always uh, two sides of the same thing. All of our emotions are associated with the thoughts that we have in, in, in our head. So, so when you hear hearts, don't be thinking that that's a different thing than the mind. It's two aspects of the same thing. And Paul is saying that whenever, uh, that to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their heart, their thoughts and their emotions. So they cannot see something that they're supposed to see. And this is what it is. Paul says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord... The veil over or in the mind and the heart is taken away. Something profound happens when you turn your heart to God. Now the Lord is the Spirit, that Spirit who took away the veil, which is why, Paul says, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. What kind of freedom? Freedom to see, to experience, to uh, behold something that you couldn't behold before. Why? Because the veil's been removed. Where? In your mind, in your heart. The Spirit has freed us. And so now we all, with unveiled faces, contemplate the Lord's glory. Can I just grasp this here? The word contemplate, translated contemplate in the TNIV, is called a tridzo, which means to behold or reflect an image. 
And the TNIV translates and contemplate because they're aware that this beholding and reflecting is in the mind. So contemplate is something you do with your mind. I think it's a pretty good translation. But you need to know that literally it's beholding or reflecting an image. That's why some translations uh, uh, have, we behold as through a mirror or as through a glass darkly. Uh, It's to behold or reflect an image. And Paul says that because our faces, he's clearly not talking about our physical faces, But because our minds, our hearts have been unveiled, we now can behold the Lord's glory. Why? Because we're free. Why? Because the Spirit took away the veil that kept us from seeing this before. And as we behold this glory, listen to this, folks. It's powerful stuff here. As we behold the Lord's glory, we're transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit who is the one who set us free by taking away the veil, which allows us to behold the Lord's glory. As we behold the Lord's glory, we're transformed into His glory. As we try hard, we're transformed into His glory? No. As we wait for God just to do something and take it away, we're transformed into His glory? No. As we read more books and listen to more sermons, we're transformed into His glory? No. It's as we behold in the freedom of the Spirit, with unveiled faces, the Lord's glory... That's how we're transformed into his glory. You become what you see. That's the principle. Moving on. A couple more verses. Uh, Three verses later. And remember that in the original, they didn't have chapter or verse divisions. This is the same paragraph. He's talking about the same thing here. He goes on and says, Even if our gospel is veiled, if it continues to be veiled, it is veiled. Remember, the veiling he's talking about is in the mind and heart is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, that's Satan, of course, has blinded the minds of unbelievers. So it's very clear what kind of veil and seeing he's talking about. He's blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see. Clearly not a physical seeing he's talking about. He's talking about a spiritual mind-heart seeing. They cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Powerful, powerful stuff in this passage here. And so often neglected. The idea here is that when we were hardened against God and uh, not surrendered to God, there was a veil that covered our mind-heart and kept us from seeing truth, kept us from seeing who Jesus really was, kept us from seeing the glory of God, and therefore, therefore, kept us from being transformed. But when we surrender... To the Lord, the Spirit of God takes away that veil over our mind and heart, and He sets us free, sets us free to be transformed. How? Because He sets us free to see, behold, sense, experience the glory that we couldn't experience before. And now we have the capacity to behold and experience in our heart and mind the glory of God shining in the face of Jesus Christ. This is how God says, let there be light. Now there's light in there. Why? Because there's no veil that's blocking it. And as we behold this glory, and the glory is simply the radiance of God's love and, and attributes, as we behold that glory, we're transformed into that glory from one degree to another with ever-increasing glory. It's what you see and what you experience as real in your mind, in your emotions, that determines whether or not and the extent to which you are transformed into that image. 
As I, as I can have times where I in my heart and mind and with an unveiled face and in the freedom of the Spirit behold the glory of God. As I see, as I behold His love towards me, I become more loving. I'm transformed into His image. As I see His peace towards me because we've been reconciled and I have a way of representing that in my mind and through the power of the Spirit, it becomes real to me. I'm transformed into that peace. I become more peaceful. As I see God's joy over me because of what Jesus has done for me. And, and, and that's not just an abstract truth, but now it's something I'm concretely experiencing in my heart and mind because I've been set free from the Spirit to behold it. As I see His joy over me, I become more joyful. In fact, all of the fruit of the Spirit is simply the, our inheritance from God. Everything that God is by nature, He gives to us by grace. We're transformed into it. His love by nature becomes our love by grace. His joy becomes our joy. His peace becomes our peace. But it happens, not by our trying hard or reading more books or just waiting around for Him to do something, but as we behold these things, as we behold the Lord's glory in a concrete, a vivid fashion. This thing that Paul's talking about, where the veil was and where the freedom now is, this, this place is what we today would call our imagination. The word literally means imageation. Um, it is, uh, it's just the mind's ability to experience, to think in images. And we do it all the time, though we usually don't notice it. It's the, it's the image-making, image-experiencing capacity of the mind. And this is what, what Paul is talking about as he talks about the freedom that the Spirit gives us. Now, one of the problems that we have in Western culture is that we are all heirs of the scientific revolution uh, in the 16th and 17th century and the Enlightenment and the naturalistic worldview. In other words, we are all uh, conditioned, those of us who, are in, who, who are, were raised in Western culture, we're conditioned to believe that what is really real is the hard stuff, matter, the objective world, the stuff you can feel with your physical senses, see with your physical senses, the stuff you can put into a test tube and experiment with. That's, that's our default sort of understanding of reality. No wonder that the things of God and the things of the Spirit don't seem real to us. We are uh, what's called empirically oriented, oriented towards a physical world. And in that world, imagination gets interpreted as make-believe. Oh, it's just your imagination. Uh, it's child's play. It's fantasy stuff. Imagination takes you away from reality. If you accept this scientific enlightenment worldview that is part of the, the general Western worldview. And so imagination gets disqualified as, as anything that's important. And whenever we experience something concrete and vivid in our minds, we're inclined to dismiss it as we're just making it up. It's just fantasy. Now, now, here's what we need to see. This is just so important, folks. One of the roles of imagination is fantasy or child's play, and that's not a bad thing. The ability to, to create is largely fr from that Im imagination, to write novels and stories and create works of art and, and uh, uh, other things. That, that's an important aspect of being a human being, and that's all about the imagination, our creativity, our ability to, to look at the world differently and experience the world differently is all wrapped up with that fantasy creative aspect of imagination. So that's a good thing. But that's not by any means all that imagination is about. 
as every culture outside of our own the last couple hundred years has understood, imagination, while it can be fantasy and take you away from reality, it also is a crucial means of getting you into reality. Now follow me on this. Imagination does not necessarily take you away from reality. It's a key way, in some respects the only way, of really experiencing reality. So think about this, for example. Dave drafts earlier had you think about the time you first came to Woodland Hills. Will you just go back there right now in your mind and, and remember when you first came to Woodland Hills and what you saw, what you sensed, what you heard, what people were saying or not saying, how you felt. Try to, try to reincarnate, if you will, yourself back there. I shouldn't use that word. People got buzzers about that. I mean, just make it concrete again. Get, 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 think, think back on what it was like when you first came here. Now, Ask yourself this question. How do you know that that was your experience when you first came to Woodland Hills? And the answer you'd probably give is, well, I'm remembering it, stupid. You asked us to remember it, I'm remembering it, and that's how I know that that was my experience when I first came to Woodland Hills. Okay, but I want to go a little deeper. How do you remember it? Do you have a piece of, like, do you see a blank screen with some information running across the bottom going, when you first came to Wilden Hills, there was a very nice person dressed in a pink dress who came and welcomed you and you felt really good about things. Is that what's going on in your mind? I don't think so. What's going on in your mind as you remember your first uh, time you attended Wilden Hills is that you are re-experiencing it all over again. You, you are, 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 are seeing what you saw and hearing what you heard and sensing what you sensed. Now, you, we're so used to this that we don't notice that that's what we're doing, but that, in fact, is what's going on. All thought involves experiencing on the inside what we experience, uh, what we experience on the outside. We recreate our experience in, in our mind, and that, folks, is imagination. In some way, there is an image going on in your mind that is telling you and helping you re-experience what it was when you first came to Woodland Hills. Imagination isn't taking you away from reality, it's getting you into reality, the reality of what happened in the past. Same thing is true about our thinking about the future. You can't think about the future without using your imagination. In fact, I'll say more about this next week, but you can't think without imagination. It's all imagination. But right now, think about what you're going to do the rest of today, as soon as service is done. Just think about that. Now, do you get a ticket tape of a piece of information? You know, is that what it's called, ticket tape, or that ticker on the bottom? You like when it's the Wall Street thing, or is that ticket tape? Okay, well, yeah, ticker tape or ticket tape? Ticker, 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 cha, ticker, 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 when I tell them to No, a ticker tape. A ticker tape, whatever that is. On the bottom, you know, it's always going, it's very irritating when you watch CNN. If you have ADD, you can't, you know, what am I supposed to watch? The ticker tape or the. But what. You didn't see when you thought about what you're going to do when you leave this church service. You didn't get a bunch of information that says, oh, we will go to a restaurant or we'll go home and, and, and clean our basement or whatever. We don't think with the information. You saw, heard, sensed something. Maybe you don't know quite how you did it. But, but there was images there that brought about an anticipation of what you're going to do when you leave service uh, this morning. And in fact, everything you do is a function of that imaginative uh, world of the future that you represent. And the Bible calls that faith. We'll get into that more later on in the series. The faith about what's going to happen and what you hope to have happen, or maybe what you fear happening, is what leads you to act in certain ways. And if what you're thinking about in the future is a real happy thing, you're excited. If what you're thinking about that's going to happen after the service is a, is a, is a painful thing, 
well, then you're going to be experiencing that pain ahead of time, and you'll be full of anxiety. But the thing is that imagination takes us to reality. In fact, we even know this in science. It used to be that we had this idea of science as sort of cold rationalism. We're investigating the world with our reason alone and finding out truths about the world. And it does involve reason and mathematics and all that. But what we now know, it's been clear throughout the 20th century, is that imagination plays a vital, indispensable role in science. When people are theorizing about uh, how the world might be in order to engage in certain experiments, they are imagining things. Imagination plays a crucial role in helping them get into even the physical world and understand the physical world. For example, Einstein, when he was 16 years old, riding home from school, this guy had an imagination. He started to imagine to himself, what would it be like if I was racing a light photon right now? If I was going the speed of light, and here's this photon, uh, then how would I experience the world if I was going that fast? And since everything he saw around him is itself going the speed of light, he came to the conclusion that everything would freeze. And he was right. And later on, that was confirmed through science and, and, and even got a mathematical formula to it and all the rest. But it starts in the imagination. Imagination's everything. It's not fantasy. It takes us to reality. And so it is in the things of the Spirit. Throughout the church tradition, and this is nothing new that we're sharing here, though it's going to be new to a lot of Westerners because we've forgotten about this stuff the last couple hundred years. But throughout the Western tradition, it was understood that the, the mind, the imagination, is the inner sanctuary, or they call it the inner sanctum, the holy place, where we meet God, and we experience God, and the things of God in concrete, transforming ways. They understood 2 Corinthians 3 that we were reading earlier, this inner sanctum. And there was all sorts of spiritual exercises that we'll be getting into throughout this series that allow them, and at least help them, to uh, uh, invite the Holy Spirit into their inner sanctum and experience the things of God concretely. And see, if we're thinking that that stuff is make-believe, then all that, 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 that the reality of, of, of uh, the things of God is just kind of disqualified, and we wonder why we're not experiencing reality and why, why we're not being more transformed. Here's what I found. Take two groups of people. One group really gets into prayer and the other group doesn't. One group prays for an hour a day. The other group finds it irritating to pray five minutes. And in my, what I found, I don't have any kind of like a hard research project on this. Someone should write a dissertation on this, I think. But, but in my experience, it's not necessarily the case that the first group is just more spiritual than the second group or the first group is more disciplined than the second group. What I found is that the, the group that tends to get into prayer and pray pra- passionately has something going on in their heads that the, uh, the second group just never learned about. The first group, when they pray, they're seeing stuff, they're experiencing stuff, they're talking to Jesus and they're seeing Jesus and they're praying for people and they're, 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 they're imagining those people in some way. Maybe not through seeing them in their minds, but through somehow sensing them or, 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 or however they represent it. But there's reality going on. When I pray, I sometimes... I uh, get a picture of, of, of the people I'm praying for, and I see kind of this, this light coming down on them, and I just know that that represents that, uh, that my prayer is making a difference in their life. And see, in seeing that, it's bringing me closer to reality, because as a matter of fact, my prayer is making a difference on their life. And so when, when you experience it as real, well, then, then, then it's exciting for you. You get something out of it. But the, the, the second group... When they pray, they just have not, there's nothing going on inside their heads that makes their prayer real. 
what they experience is real. They believe God. They even may believe God is listening to them. But they're talking to a wall. What's real is the wall. And what's real is the job I got to do tomorrow and the grocery bills and the lawyer. And, and since those things I experience is real, my brain will always gravitate towards those things. Which is why we have such trouble concentrating uh, when we're praying, unless there's something else going on in your mind. And if you're talking to a wall, when there's a job to be done, it takes a lot of discipline to pray even five minutes. And it's excruciating. So sometimes I think the people who don't have anything going on in their head are actually more disciplined than the people who do have something going on in their head. Because it takes a lot to keep on persevering when, 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 when it feels completely unreal. That is boring. Talking to a wall. Talking to a, a stand. High stand. You know, it's very boring. It's all about the imagination. Take two, two groups of people, uh, worshipers. One group, when they get into worship, man, it's real to them. They lose themselves. They forget about everything else. Uh, you know, their, their body is into it. Their mind's into it. Their heart's into it. Uh, sometimes they cry. Sometimes they laugh. They're, they're just into it. And they can go on all day. Second group, they're bored stiff. And they're always wondering, why don't we ever play the kind of music I like? And why do we have to keep on repeating these songs for crying out loud? And the songs use bad grammar. <laughs> and, and they notice all those things and it irritates the daylights out of them. And they, out of obedience, try to get into it, but it's irritating. And they certainly, 10 minutes of this is, is enough. Let's move on to something important. Because, you see, I, what I found is it's not necessarily the case that the ones who really get into, the, into worship uh, and maybe do it every day, they're not necessarily more spiritual than the group that is just bored stiff with it. But there's something going on in their heads that isn't going on with the second group. I don't know how they learned it. So, you know, some folks, just, have, they're wired this way. They just do it naturally. But something is going on there. When they worship God, when they sing, you know, holy is the Lord, they're somehow representing the Lord there and His holy train and His glory filling the earth. And it's real to them. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is, 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 is using that to make the song uh, a, a, a reality that they are, they're experiencing. Whereas the other group, they're just singing the song. And so the only thing that's real is whether they like the song or not or whether it's using good grammar or not. And that's what they notice. Same thing is true in transformation. Norm saying this song, imagine me. Imagine me being free. Imagine me really walking in the forgiveness of God and, and, and having the, the, the confidence that I'm loved with an everlasting love. Imagine me. My experience has been that those who experience the most transformation in their life are the ones who have a different... They're, they're able to imagine what God says about them being true. And you become what you see, for better or for worse. That's how God wired us. And as, they, as, as their imagination, their inner sanctum is captivated by the truth of God, they start to live in a different world and see a different future for themselves and, and experience a, 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 a different self. And so they gravitate towards that. Now some folks, and I'll say more about this next week, we're not going to have time this morning, but uh, you know, some folks have had some buzzers installed about this. Like, oh, this sounds like kind of new age Pop psychology stuff, imagination or visualizing, it sounds new age. I've been warned about that. And what, you're going to be talking to us to now visualize world peace and start hugging trees. <laughs> world peace wouldn't be a bad thing, but I don't want anyone going on hugging trees. Unless you want to. Now, but look at, okay, here's, and I'll say more about this next week, but folks, you know, the passage we read this morning, and there's many others like that. 
shows that this is a biblical principle. That's our criteria. And you find this practice throughout church history. I'll, I'll show some of that more uh, uh, next week. What always bugs me is that the enemy comes along and borrows kingdom stuff, and then kingdom people get rid of it for fear of the borrowing. Not good strategy. Not smart. Uh, and, and we throw the baby out with the bathwater. No, you see, the, the, the thing is, is that God wired us this way, and this is the, his gift. Of course the enemy is going to sabotage it and, and, and try to come up with counterfeits, whatever. But look, you don't get rid of your Bible because there's false Bibles out there, do you? I hope not. And you, you don't want to say no to all prophecies just because there's some false prophecies. So also, for anything that has value, there'll be a good use of it and a bad use, a true and a counterfeit. Expect that. In fact, the, the, the fact that you have counterfeit versions of the spiritual use of imagination proves that there must be a true use of it. Because no one's going around making counterfeit $7 bills. You understand what I'm saying? And so we need to recover this. We need to recover this and take it back and confidently embrace uh, the teachings of Scripture on this. Okay, well, we're going to end this way. Um, St. Ignatius of Loyola, who was one of the greatest, most insightful spiritual writers on uh, what in the church tradition was called cataphatic prayer, just means praying with images. Uh, we today usually call it imaginative prayer. Uh, but he, uh, in the, in the uh, 16th century, would hold these month-long seminars. And people had to commit to being there all day long for 30 days. And all of it was about the use of the imagination in spirituality. And it was pr profoundly uh, transforming. And he always says at the beginning of the exercise, find the place. He's talking about finding the place in the mind, in the heart, in the, in the spirit. Find the place in the imagination. And that becomes the, the inner sanctum where you now invite the Holy Spirit to unveil your eyes to see the glory of God. And I encourage people who are first starting on this to try to think back or recall as vividly as you can some place in your experience that represents something peaceful, something that is easy for you to imagine whether you can imagine it by seeing it or just by sensing it or remembering how it smelt or, or, or whatever, but, but just something in the past that, that, that is easy to access in a vivid way and brings a sense of calmness, and this will be your place. It could be something that comes from your childhood or it could be a place uh, in more recent memory. It could be something in nature, but it doesn't have to be. It could be something in your house, uh, a room in your house that was safe or even someplace in the city that you just associate with, with, with good memories. And, and it just is a, a, a nice place to start uh, learning how to access, to enter uh, your inner sanctum. I, when I first started this 25 years ago, um, I'd always go to a small opening in, in, in the forest in my mind uh, that I used to go to as a young child. I, I ran away every day to get away from my stepmother and there's a place in the woods that I found I thought I was the only one who knew about it and there's a like a circle of light that was there because of the opening in the trees the rest of the forest was pretty dark but there's this opening of light and and that was my place I, I would run away and I had uh, treasures uh, hidden there and toys hidden there and sometimes I'd spend all day there it just represented safety to me and now what I do is I 
not always, but uh, especially early on when I was practicing this, I'd always go there because I can so vividly recall the sound of the trees as they blew in the wind, the smell of the evergreens, uh, the sight of the light breaking through the forest, creating this oval of light. I'm there. I'm there. Often we'll put on music because music is a great way of, of, of uh, opening up the heart and activating the imagination. Some people don't find it helpful, but most people do. In fact, we have a CD that we're offering to people from the, uh, a person in our congregation uh, who, who just provides music that's really helpful on, um, on finding that place. And then in that place, in that place, just ask the Holy Spirit to show you the glory of God which is the love of God, or the joy of God, or the peace of God. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to see Jesus, though some people who are very visual will, but maybe you just sense him being there. Maybe there's some other way the Holy Spirit represents him being there. Maybe you hear the Lord speak to you. It's important, so important, that you don't turn this into some kind of contest, or you don't indict yourself if it's not working well. I mean, it's really defeating the purpose. And this is just the time to rest. Just be there and be in the presence of God. Just be aware of God's presence there. Because the reality is God is present, right, at all times. So you're just bringing yourself closer to the truth by realizing God is there. And, and I'm gonna, we're going to spend a few minutes just doing that right here. We'll put on some music and just ask the Holy Spirit to help you find the place. And then just be there with Jesus. Whether it's sensing him somewhere, or maybe some folks have just kind of seen a part of Jesus' feet, uh, just letting him know that, 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 that he's there. However it works, uh, what, what matters is that the truth, the abstract truth that he loves you is becoming concrete, and the abstract truth that he's always present with you is now becoming concrete in the inner sanctum. Second Corinthians 3 is starting to be fulfilled. And this is what transforms us because it's what you see in the mind-heart that determines what we become. So close your eyes for a moment. And can we dim the lights? And just let yourself find the place. Holy Spirit, help us find that place. In peace and serenity. And then invite the Lord there.
as you sit in this place and are aware of the Lord being present there. Can you hear him just whisper to you with your name on it? Truths that he's already spoken in his word, but now they apply to you. You are my precious child. I love you with an everlasting love. I will never leave you or forsake you. You are my radiant bride, holy and blameless. You ravish my heart. Do you know that I'm always looking at you fondly? I sometimes sing over you. Did you know that? Sometimes I dance over you. call you my friend because you are my love for you is beyond anything you can imagine but just let me love you just let me love you and father thank you for the gift of imagination, the gift of the inner sanctum. And God, I pray that every person listening to this, whether in the auditorium or through podcasting or other means, would just see this as an adventure full of possibilities, would apply the material as they grow in this, because Lord, we want to know you, not just abstractly, but really and to be transformed by you, really. Let it happen, Lord. Help us to walk in the freedom for which you've set us free. The veil has been lifted. Help us to see, to behold, to rejoice, to be transformed. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, amen, amen. Okay, this is a seminar. That means there's an assignment. The assignments are out at the hub. Uh, also, if you have those booklets, you can just use those as our assignments throughout this whole series. If you don't have our animated books, I encourage you to pick one up, or you can download one on the website. And as I said before, there are small groups that are available, so get plugged into those. Uh, prayer teams, if you'd come forward, I want to invite you to come forward for prayer if there's anything that you have need of. God bless you guys. Go out there and keep your eyes open. The veil has been lifted.